As part of Ivy's new masterclass series, Ivy members in Boston learned not only how to become great leaders, but how to lead with dignity. Hearing from the associate at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs and the author of Leading with Dignity, Dr. Donna Hicks, members were treated to an in-depth talk that guided them on their path to professional development as leaders who not only build successful teams, but create a culture that brings out the best in people. I have been, for the last 25 years, working as an international conflict resolution specialist. And what I do is I bring parties together uh, for dialogues. And started out in the Middle East and uh, with trying to create opportunities for the Israelis and Palestinians to have a discussion about the political issues that divided them. And then I moved on to Sri Lanka, had a 10-year project there. Um, I mean, all over, wherever there was a pretty hot, intractable conflict, my, my organization at Harvard was you know, doing some work there and, and trying to, to bring these parties together. So I would be sitting there at the tables, at the negotiating tables, and we would hope that you know, the idea was to get the, both parties to sit together and work together on these difficult issues that were dividing them. And they were always the political issues, of course. You know, that's what the negotiations were all about. And yet, there was always a second conversation taking place in the room besides the, the politics. And this second conversation had no words. It was all emotional. And it, it would run through... You know, let's say you got the negotiating table there, you got everybody sitting around it. Well, this, this emotional undercurrent was running under the table while they were trying to settle the issues that were on the table. Like, where are you going to put the capital of the country and how are you going to divide up the, you know, where are you going to put the borders? All of these really, really difficult political questions. And so, so I want to talk tonight about these unspoken conversations that were taking place in the room. And these, as I said, these were such emotional reactions to what was taking place, you know, to, to the other side and reacting to um, getting really upset with their inability to come to an agreement on things, especially things that felt so critically important to them. And so one day I'm thinking, oh my God, this emotional stuff, it's, it's actually ruining the opportunities for them to have a, you know, to sign on to an agreement. And I realized, hi, come on in, sit down, welcome. I was just telling the story about how I, I do these international conflict resolution dialogues. And so I, was, I would say to my colleagues, oh my gosh, this emotional stuff that's coming up in these, in these discussions, they're, they're derailing our efforts at trying to get an agreement. What are we going to do? And people would say, oh, well, you can't do anything about that. You know, you just have to deal with it. And then I realized, well, you know, I think this, we're having the wrong conversation first. I think we're supposed to have the conversation about these unspoken emotional reactions first because how do you expect to get people to sign on to an agreement when they're filled with resentment, filled with anger, filled with, you know, how do you expect them to do that? And so, I mean, long story short, I could spend hours telling you about how I came to this uh, insight about dignity. At one point, I said, okay, we've got to ask them to, we're just going to ask them to explain what happens to them when they're feeling so emotionally upset, right? Well, I tried that once. You want to know how far I got with that? You want to guess? Not very, Not very far. Nobody wants to talk about the emotional aspects of these conflicts. They say to me, oh, just resolve the politics and you're going to, we're going to be fine. Right? Resolve the policy. There's no emotional issues here. All right. So, and then one day, I think I was, I was in Sri Lanka, I'm pretty sure, and I was sitting at this table and I said to myself, I had this big flash of insight, you know, and I said, I know what's going on here. And if I were to put words to this, what was going on, it would sound something like, remember because I said there were no words to this conversation? It, it would, what they would want to say to each other was something like, how dare you treat us this way, right? How dare you? 
And don't you see we're suffering? Can't you see our people are suffering and you're doing nothing about it? So, and I, and I had, you know, I realized that those questions that needed to be talked about and needed to be answered were all about their dignity. It was all about being treated as if you didn't matter in these conflicts. And in conflict situations, you see this, this kind of gets all lit up, right? This is what happens when people can't mend a relationship. So that word dignity, it was remarkable because when I tried, actually, I was in Colombia at South America, and I tried using uh, this dignity framing on a discussion that needed to happen there between two different parties that were having a conflict. I, I said to people, you know, would you be willing, would you be willing to have a conversation about what I am, am, am finding here in this room to be a lot of unaddressed dignity violations that are going on in this conflict. Would you be willing to have a discussion about that? You know, as opposed to, can we talk about the emotional reactions you're having, right? Which got nowhere. I, I, and so when I framed it that way, and I said to them, would you be willing to talk about these unaddressed dignity assaults that you've all experienced? Would you, would you have that conversation with me? We want to guess what happened? Everybody wanted to, to, to talk about the ways in which they felt their dignity had been violated. You know, they said to me, finally, someone has, um, someone has given us an opportunity to talk about these underlying seething, you know, seething issues that are getting in the way of their being able to put that past to rest. So that's how it all started. And that's why I came up with this idea of leading with dignity. Because the other thing that happened when I was um, researching this topic of dignity was that I realized if, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be a leader, you have to understand how core, how crucial this is to the human condition that people want to be treated well. It's so fundamental, and, it's, and it, I found that these dignity issues come up in conflicts in the workplace, they come up in international conflicts, they come up in your families, in marriages, in friendships, in communities. And so I feel like I've actually, um, I actually got to the core of, of something here. And, and John Nesbitt really sums this up well. And I love this slide because he says, the most exciting breakthroughs of the 21st century will not occur because of technology, but because of an expanding concept of what it means to be human. And I'm telling you, friends, that dignity is at, is at the core of what it means to be human. It is our highest common denominator. All of us want the same thing. We all have this deep desire to be treated as if we're of something of value and worth, as if we mattered. So now here's the thing that I discovered, though, with leadership, is that very few of the leaders with whom I worked had any concept of dignity. Nobody, I mean, they, they would say to me, oh, yeah, Dr. Hicks, this is really important, right? And I would say to them, well, tell me, what do you think it is? What, why do you think it's so important? And I swear to you, they say, oh, well, you know, it's dignity. Everybody wants dignity. Yeah, but they came up short when it came to really, let's have a discussion about it and let's figure out how we can work with dignity in order to help you resolve your conflicts. Or on the positive side, how can we work with dignity to help you create an environment where your people are feeling really valued? How to create a culture in your, in your organization where people are, you know, uh, willing to give discretionary energy, people are engaged, people are, you know, really wanting to and excited about going to work. So I, I discovered that, um, even though what it means to be human and dignity being at the core of that is something so fundamental to the human condition, the ignorance gap, the gap in our knowledge was, I always say, it was encyclopedic, right? People just didn't have a, a, at all an understanding. And I'm talking about people like myself and all of you, and you know, I'm talking about really educated people. They still, they had not delved into this. And honestly, 
until I started delving and to figure out what this is and how it works and doing my research, I was, I was, I was actually a dignity violator myself. You know, we all are, actually, you know, if we're honest. So, and I, and so I realized that if we're going to lead people, if we're going to lead people, we'd better understand them. If we're going to be in leadership positions, if we're managers, if we're bosses, if we're, you know, team leaders trying to build up a, a work, a work team, we really have to understand this. We have to understand how important it is to us as human beings. And I have to tell you, I'll share with you a very simple truth about dignity, and that is that we all want to be treated well. That, again, I think it's our highest common denominator. And when we're not, we suffer. It's simple as that. When we're not treated well, we suffer. On the other hand, when we're treated well, we flourish. It's, it gives, it's, we, we grow and we expand ourselves. We feel free to be our authentic selves. So if you're in a, in a, the head of a company or head of a, any organization, head of state, doesn't it just make sense to leverage this dignity idea? Because this simple truth that when we're treated well, we flourish. I mean, this is what organizations need to leverage to, to make a workplace one where people are excited and people feel good about themselves. They feel good about each other. So that, that's the whole thing about dignity. And so leading with dignity, and I found out going into these organizations as a consultant, if people, if the leadership team didn't understand this, the conflicts were all over the place, all over the place. And so that's why, you know, they would hire me to do this. So I'm going to ask you a question. What is dignity? What do you think? What comes to mind when you hear the word? Respect. That's always the first thing people say. Yes, thank you very much. Anybody else? What? Yep, that's usually the second thing people say. Value. Value. Yeah, dignity is our value, right. Admiration. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Aaron, how about you? Do you have any other words? I got your name right this time. You did? Yes. Okay. Um, I would say, um, I guess not speaking to people in a way that you let them know that you don't think that you are somehow better than them. Oh, this is a key component to it, you know, because one of the things that I, that one I call the elements of dignity is that you accept people's identity as your equal. That you're neither, you're neither inferior to them or superior to them. You are, we are all equal in dignity. We may differ in status. I mean, you may be my boss, right? What's your name? Jason. What? Jason. Jason. Jason may be my boss, but he cannot treat me as if I am inferior to him. He has to treat me as if I am something of value, just in the same way that you would want to be treated, right? So when I started researching this book, and I, the first book that I wrote on dignity and conflict, I realized that because this dignity issue was so highly charged emotionally, that we had to make, I had to make the definition very simple. And so what I came up with in, after searching and reading is that dignity is our inherent value, like you were saying, and but the part that most people don't really attach to dignity is vulnerability. Because the fact is, our dignity is just as vulnerable as any other aspect of our physical being. So, and I also think, what's your name? Japan. Japan? Japan. Japan. I also think Japan and everybody else who thought it was respect, I think it's different. And in a minute, I'm going to say what I th why I think it's different. You and everybody else thinks it's the same, but I'm going to tell you why I think it's different. So dignity, I think when I say inherent, we're born with it, right? We are The minute we come into the world, we've got it. And if you take a look at this little precious thing, you would, you would say, I think you would say, well, that child has value, right? That child has worth. And in fact, I think we would say that this child is invaluable. All these babies, all these infants, they're not only valuable, but invaluable. They're priceless and irreplaceable. So what do we do with something that's invaluable, priceless, 
and irreplaceable. What do we do with it? Take care of it. Take care of it. Nurture it, right? Protect it. All those things. Now, it's easy to do when they're this age, right? You know, you get, because what these little ones do when we see new, fresh life come into the world, it softens us up too. They're very soft and cuddly, but we get soft and cuddly too. And I'm thinking, we want to get back to that feeling, right? With, when we're with each other, we want to get back to that sweet, cuddly preciousness that we all are, because we're all born with this inherent dignity. Come on, have a seat. Yeah. So, in fact, you know, how many of you have name tags where you work, where you have to have your picture in, in order for security to get in? Many, a couple of you have, many of you do. Well, I think what we need to do is instead of putting our current pay, uh, face on these names, but pictures on these names, we should get our baby pictures. <laughs> so we'll remind each other of how precious we are, right? And it'll soften, whoa, Ivy, sorry, Ivy. And it'll soften us up again and get us, take away all those hard edges that life just inflicts upon us. You know, we get all, we get all messed up with being, having our dignity violated so much. We got to get back to this. So, and I think it's different from respect because dignity, as I said, it's something that we're all born with. We don't have to do a darn thing to have dignity. We just have to be born. Now, we have to do a lot of stuff to act like we have dignity. We have to do a lot of stuff to understand dignity. But with respect, I actually think respect has to be earned. You know? And when I say I respect somebody, I, I want to say, oh, gee, I want to be like you. you I, you're a model of how I want to be in the world, right? And... But dignity, I think everybody deserves to, to be treated with dignity. I, I don't care what you do. It's the baseline of our interact. It should be. Because in my business, you know, in international conflict, I'm telling you, they're clamoring all the time for respect. They say, we deserve respect. You know, we deserve to be treated with respect. And I'm thinking, no, don't use that word. That's a bridge too far for your enemy. Your enemy is not going to respect you, but your enemy can be convinced that it's in their interest to treat you with dignity. That's, that's possible. And so I'm, I'm telling you that if we did all of us understand and learned how to treat each other with dignity, we'd see far fewer conflicts in the world, not to mention just in our own lives and in our own communities, we'd see far fewer conflicts. So. I had some, I read some interesting research while I was writing these books about dignity. And there's now, fortunately, there is now significant neuroscience that backs up all of this, all of these ideas that I have had for so long about how important dignity is. And so I was looking through the literature and I found these people out in UCLA. Um, Naomi Eisenberg and Matt Lieberman, and they were doing research with brain scans. They were putting people inside brain scans and, and putting scenarios in front of them. And one scenario was when somebody broke his arm and they had that, or had some kind of a physical injury. Well, what they discovered was that <clears throat> that physical injury showed up in the brain. The people experience a physical injury in the brain um, in the most ancient centers. They, this is part of the brain that developed very early on. It's where our emotional reactions are, are, are generated. It's where pain is experienced in the brain. It's called the limbic system for some of you who might know that, um, brain anatomy. But that's not fascinating, right? You would expect that. What we didn't expect and the findings that they didn't expect was that when people had, was it, were exposed to having their dignity violated, guess what? Showed up in the brain in the same area as a physical injury. What do you think about that? What do you think, Jenna? It's pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting. It's causal. 
It's causal. It's not even a correlation. It's causal. So dignity violations, when you experience someone mistreats you and treats you as if you're less than or diminishes you in some way or humiliates you, your brain gets all lit up as if you were having a physical injury because the brain doesn't know the difference between an assault to your dignity, your sense of value and worth, and your experiencing a physical wound. Oh, God. I mean, I thought this was remarkable because, you know, this was the data. These, this was the research that I needed that I could take into a, let's say, into the corporate world, because I did, and say, look, I know you think this dignity stuff is all kind of touchy-feely. You know, I got that all the time. And I said, well, you know, thank, thank God for neuroscience because now we have evidence that this isn't just a touchy-feely situation. You know how people often said, oh, it's just a, you know, just get over it. You're, you're just so emotional. Get over it. How many times have you heard that? Yes, many. And so what this, this research has done for me as a person trying to get people's attention about the importance of dignity is that it's validated what, what I'm saying. Yes, we have to pay attention to this. The way we treat each other matters. So anyway, and this was the very first research done. I think this was done in 2006, but now it's been replicated over and over. I mean, the neuroscientific, the, the expansive understanding of our emotional worlds due to neuroscience is just remarkable because, you know, in the old days, those of us who were psychologists, we knew things anecdotally, but we didn't have the evidence to prove it. Now we have the evidence to show, you know, our emotional world is very, very fragile. It's very, very delicate. So, okay, and I'm thinking, I don't know about what you, you would, whether you would agree with me, but I believe a wound to our dignity is actually worse than a physical injury. Even though it's experienced the same, but I think the way we react to it, what it does to us, it's worse. Because, see that nice red cast that guy has from getting a, um, his, his arm set? Well, when we have a physical injury, we get so much sympathy from people, right? Look at that beautiful ca cast. You know, I remember when I was a little kid, we used to have white ones, and my next-door neighbor broke her, she broke her wrist, I think, and she got this cast, and everybody signed it. And I said to my mother, I want to break my wrist. I love that cast. Everybody's paying so much attention to this, to this friend of mine. But it's true. We are, you know, open our hearts to people who have physical injuries, cancer and all this, right? But when somebody is humiliated, oh my God, we don't even want to go near them. It's so horrible, you know, it's such a horrible experience because the thing is, these dignity violations are toxic. They can create a toxic work environment in a nanosecond. And just, just imagine yourselves in a staff meeting, all right? Imagine yourself in a staff meeting at work and somebody, one of your colleagues gets, you know, um, mistreated by, by the boss or whoever's running the staff meeting. And you sit there and you, ooh, God, you feel it. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? And so there's science behind that, that we are actually, we, we have neurons in our brain called mirror neurons that pick up on the emotional experience of others. So even though this isn't a direct hit that you might get, you know, from being the target of the dignity violation, everybody feels it. Everybody feels it. Now, here's the, there's always a flip side to dignity. You know what I'm going to say? Anybody know where I'm going with this? When your dignity is honored, let's say you're in a staff meeting and somebody, you know, somebody's treated really well or you're all treated really well, those, there is a ripple effect with that too. We feel that sense of, um, you know, being treated well. We all feel that. We all um, benefit from, from a dignity honoring. So again, why not leverage this notion? And why not, you know, if, it, if a honoring of people's dignity is going to create a sense of well-being in the workplace, why don't we just do it all the time? This is why all leaders need to understand this. All right, now we're going to get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty, but I have to tell you, I have to tell you a story first about um, 
what happened to me. I was working in Northern Ireland um, with Archbishop Tutu, Desmond Tutu, and we were uh, bringing uh, victims and perpetrators of that conflict together for face-to-face -face dialogues. So at one point we had a victim who was shot by this guy here, the perpetrator, and he almost died. And we brought them together 30 years later for face-to-face -face encounters, hoping that we would get you know, an opportunity to repair the relationship between them. And oh well, not to mention the BBC was television was uh, filming these whole these whole all of these encounters. So we had a three-part television series that we did together, Archbishop Tutu and I. And before we started, he said to me, Donna, let's just sit. I need to get you know we need we're going to be working really closely together, and these are very intense issues that we're working on. I need to just get a sense of where you are, you know, in your thinking about healing and you're thinking about reconciliation. So we had this wonderful conversation and he said, tell me a little bit about the dignity work that you're doing, because that's why I was chosen to work with him because of the dignity stuff. And I said, well, you know, I've been working all over the world in these international conflicts and people are constantly telling me that their dignity is being stripped from them because of the conflict and they're fighting to restore their their lost dignity. And, you know, I just thought that was like the opening statement I was going <laughs> to make to this guy. And he said to me, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, he was like screaming at me. What are you talking about? He said, nobody can strip you of your dignity. And he said, I hope you didn't perpetuate that myth with your people that you worked with in these international conflicts. Because he said, how do you think we got through apartheid? You know, in South Africa, how many years did they suffer from being second-class citizens and being treated like animals there? And so, so he said to me, whatever you do, don't tell people that their dignity is, can be stripped from them. Because he said, our dignity is in our hands, in our hands only. And he said, that's how you can get through the most difficult times in your life, is knowing that the one thing that you are in charge of, somebody can mistreat you, abuse you, but the one thing that you're in charge of is your dignity. So I'm thinking, oh my God, that was like, I was rocked. My world was rocked by that. And so I, I'm... I, I promised him, I'm, he asked me, he said, whenever you give this talk, you tell people that their dignity is in their hands and nobody can strip it away from them. Now, he also says that it's really, really important that when somebody does violate your dignity, that you heal from it. You don't let it sit there and fester and let them stockpile in you because they can, they can turn you into a perpetrator in a, in a matter of seconds. So, so yes, I'm not, so I want to be really clear here. Yes, our dignity is always in our hands. And, you know, he, he told me, he said, by the way, you have to go and read Nelson Mandela's book, um, uh, Long, uh, Long Walk to Freedom, because he explains something really important in there about dignity, too. And so I did. I went home and I read the book. And in, in the book, it said, he said he was talking about when he first went into Robben Island. You know, he was in prison for 27 years. When he first went in there, he said, what I had to do was figure out what the guards were up to. Because they, they, they wanted to be able to survive. You know, they didn't know what, how they were going to be treated. And so when he, he said, after 20 minutes, I figured out what the guards were up to, what they tried to do was strip us of our dignity. And then he said, well, I was relieved. I was relieved when I learned that. And I'm thinking, relieved? And he said, yep. He said, I'm relieved because no man or no institution will ever win that fight for my dignity because I will never give it up for any price or any, you know, any, any situation. And so these two men, you know, I learned something so profoundly um, basic about the human experience from these two men. And I, I'm honestly, I think if you walk away from this event tonight really believing that what they're saying is true, I think it's going to change your world because it changed mine. You know, I mean, how often do we always we ask ourselves, gee, am I good enough? Am I, you know, smart enough? Am I worthy? Am I? Well, if can you imagine if we got rid of that internal dialogue 
and we just accepted that we had dignity and that was it, think of how much time we would save and how much suffering we would avoid if we could just do that, what I call the Mandela consciousness, knowing that our dignity is in our hands. And here he is, Nelson Mandela, getting out of that prison 27 years later. This is the way he walks out. And he said it's because he knew his dignity was what got him through all of those years of abuse and um, demeaning treatment and, and talk about inferior, superior, right? Nothing like a prison system to, um, to breed that sort of thing. So anyway, I, I, th those, those two misconceptions, one that dignity and respect are different and that dignity is always in our hands. I think if you go home tonight with those two, you're, that's great. But the thing about this, knowing your dignity is in your own hands, that it's, it creates a sense of emotional stability within us. And even though we could, we have Oh, bad experiences. You know, we have, we get, we endure these dignity violations and, and we feel miserable. And, but if we have that emotional scaffolding, I call it scaffolding to know that that place, we can always come back to that place. It's like our sanctuary, our dignity. I'm telling you, I, I feel like a changed person. I feel like, you know, Tutu did it for me. He, he really helped me with this. So, and the other thing, you know, Tutu says that, your dignity, you may betray your dignity, but your dignity will never betray you. I mean, that's just a, one, another simple truth. How sweet is that? I'm telling you, I just love this. Um, okay, so I'm, let's get concrete here. How am I doing on time, Ariel? Five minutes, that's all? Oh my God, okay. I gotta stop telling stories. That's the, this is what always happens. All right, so we're gonna be working with these in a minute when we break into small groups. But what I did in my research, interviewed people all over the world and asked them what, how, what, how they would wanna be treated if they felt they were being treated with dignity. Well, they want their identity accepted, no matter who, like you were saying, Aaron, you know, not to be treated as inferior or superior, or inferior, really, because you might be from a particular race or religion or ethnicity or gender or sexual orientation. People want recognition. Um, they want acknowledgement when something bad happens to them. People want to be acknowledged for the suffering they've endured. Um, inclusion, well, this is a no-brainer. Many of you have had diversity training, I'm sure, in your organizations, right? Diversity and inclusion. And safety, I, I have to pause and say one little thing about safety, though, because when I did my interviews in the corporate world, I'm, I was shocked to learn that 80% of the people, when I asked them, what are the ways in which you feel your dignity has been violated in the workplace? 80% responded that it was safety violations. Now, I'm not talking about physical safety. I'm talking about not feeling safe to speak up when something bad happens to them. You know, let's say you do get your dignity violated in your, in your workplace and your boss is responsible for that. At the idea of speaking up there, it's like terrifying for people. Okay, fairness, that you would probably expect. People want to be treated fairly. Um, they they want, don't want to be micromanaged. They want understanding, being given the benefit of the doubt, and accountability. Okay, so these, I think, are the rules for a good relationship. If you want to polish up any of your relationships, not just your workplace relationships, but with your partners, your friends, try, try just brushing up on these things. But if you want to end one, only one of these. All you have to do is one of these things and you'll, you'll break a relationship. So, oh my God, I, I've been talking too much. Okay, so here's what, is, what I realized is that, you know, what, what is so important about dignity consciousness is that it's really about three things. It's about connection, connection, and Connection. So what are these three connections about with dignity? Well, you can imagine what the first one is, right? Connection to your own dignity. That's that Mandela consciousness. But you also, if you want to be dignity conscious and dignity where you have to have a connection to the dignity of others. You have to know that just you're not the only one who has dignity. Everybody else, we share this. As I said, it's our highest common denominator. I'll keep repeating that. But you also need a connection to something greater than yourself. Now, in a work environment, 
people who feel like their work has meaning, that there is a purpose, that they, you know, they are fulfilling some purpose by having the job that they do. And there's just something wonderful about knowing that there's something greater, working toward the greater good. Now, if you're religious, you can say you, this connection could also be to a higher power, you know, to your creator. So it works in so many different ways. But what I have found, what I, I use this as a diagnostic tool going into organizations to say, okay, where are the problems here? How about the people? Do they have a connection to their own dignity? And how are they doing treating each other? Are they doing a good job treating each other? All right. And finally, do they feel like their job has meaning? Do they feel like they're working towards something bigger than themselves, something, something that's greater than themselves, working for the greater good? And I find that when all three of these things are working in, in alignment, that's when people are flourishing in, in the work environment or in, their, in our lives. But even when one of these is out of whack, we suffer. So the whole idea is getting ourselves into that three, those three connections. Um, OK, what do I have, like a minute left? Ariel, okay. I, I have to go over. Uh, we'll, we'll do this other thing in a minute, but um, okay. What's wrong here? Okay, I got, oh, that one is good though. Oh, so is that one. Oh, okay. We're gonna stop at this one. So what I learned about dignity is that with these three connections, you know, connection, 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 we are actually born with the desire to be connected with other people, and the biologists tell us this that. We are, we come into the world with this desire to be connected with other people. That's where we feel the sense of safety when our relationships are good and strong and we know somebody cares for us. And yet, and yet, and we also know that we'll, we'll be in those kind of relationships where our, our, we will be able to feel the feelings of others. And this is the thing about these little infants. You know, we can see that in them. And I love this, this picture this this photo because what we really want to do is to try to solidify those human connections that we were born to we we're born for love this one neuroscientist wrote a book called born for love and so how do you how do you love how do we love one another well i'm telling you if you want to have loving connections polish up on those 10 elements of dignity because they will deliver the love for you and because when people feel their dignity is being honored they will they will open themselves up to you right so here's what leaders need to know you see what i mean about how important it is that why leaders need to know this stuff okay so is anybody does anybody have a burning question before we before i move on to does anybody comments or it usually takes one person to ask. Yes, what, what's your name? Jacob Fallon. Jacob, hi, Jacob. Oops, this is a little tippy. And, uh, I almost said it, but I wasn't sure, so I was trying to keep my safety uh, going, right? And I've, in the last couple of years, kind of learned that if I'm having trouble connecting with people I'm negotiating with, which is often they're yeah. not from America, there's a bit of a language barrier, sure. there's, there's challenges. Culture differences, sure. The Israelis are so different from us, for example. Sure. Um, I've learned that if I make myself vulnerable somehow, sometimes it's sharing that I have a husband. It's like, oh wow, he told us that. Yeah. Like something. Yes. That that usually is the icebreaker that's needed for them. Exactly. To all of a sudden feel like, okay, we're both trying to accomplish a, a common thing here. Now we can come to the table and figure it out. Yeah. How do you suggest, you know, without revealing maybe too much, yeah. creating that connection? Well, honestly, I mean, I have several chapters in the book on this topic of vulnerability. Because I think leading with dignity requires that um, we are... Uh, open and transparent and authentic in the way we deal with other people. And the more, I mean, this is the thing about vulnerability. What you did was actually, it took strength for you to, to reveal that part about yourself. The easy way would have been to just go on with the negotiations and not make yourself vulnerable, right? I mean, many people think that if you make yourself vulnerable, then you look weak. That is the biggest, talk about another myth that we don't want to perpetuate anymore. Being honest and, and, and authentic in your interactions with people, 
Um, I mean, some people are going to take advantage of it. There's no question. You, you'll get pummeled with some people because they're just n totally unaware of dignity issues. But for the most part, I mean, I think giving people the benefit of the doubt and knowing that, well, if I open myself up here, especially if you're in a leadership position like being a negotiator, you will set the tone. And setting the tone is everything in a work environment. You are the one who is going to say, you know what, it's safe here to be your authentic self. It's safe. And I have to share some research with you. This colleague of mine at Harvard, his name is Bob Keegan. He wrote a book called, um, I'm sitting on this thing. He wrote, am I okay with this? Did I pull it out? He wrote a book called, um, oh, I think it was called The Everyone Culture. But in the book, he said that when you go in to a work environment, you get hired to do a job, You're, you actually are ending up doing two jobs. And so you, and so he said, you, the first job you have is the one you were hired to do. But the second job was, is one where you're constantly covering up your sense of inadequacy. You're, you're hiding all of your, your faults or your, you know, shortcomings and thinking you're not smart enough or you don't know what you're doing in your, and he said that that mount, that energy that you expend hiding. Instead of coming clean and saying to your colleague, gee, you know what? You might know more about this than I do. Would you be willing to talk me through how to, how to do this? You know, because I'm, I'm not really sure. But again, Jacob, that's making yourself vulnerable, right? But, and our instincts are to do the opposite. And that, that other slide that I was going to show you, there's all these different instincts that we come into the world with that prevent us from looking bad in the eyes of other people. And so we cover up. We don't, we're not that transparent and we're not that vulnerable. So I'm so happy you brought that up because it's at the core of leading with dignity. Thank you. Anybody else? Krista, you must have a feeling there that you're stirring and around in, huh? I was curious what your largest surprise was that mm. you came across. So you've done a lot of research, you, you, know, you think you're on a certain track, you think you have all of your eggs in a basket. You shared one, one example where you were kind of taken by surprise. Were there any other instances? Which one were you referring to, the first one that I... With Tutu. Oh, with Tutu, that. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I think the biggest surprise, uh, and it continues, it doesn't just, it isn't just a one-time deal. The biggest surprise is the level of ignorance even well-intentioned people have about how fragile our dignity is. You know, um, you know I, was, I was listening to a radio program today talking about how men, I mean, with this whole Me Too movement now and Kavanaugh and the hearings and everything, and this, this psychologist was talking about how men are told, you know, taught, you know, well, man up, don't, you know, don't, don't show your weakness and all of these messages and how, 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 how that ignorance about how much that damages people's sense of being able to be their true, authentic, vulnerable selves. You know, that they're, they may be feeling one thing inside and then, you know, they feel that, oh God, I can't look bad in the eyes of others. I have to man up or what. And all these things, all these ways in which the ignorance has gotten seeped into our social norms and our social, our cultures. And so learning about dignity, again, I'm constantly surprised at how little we know, constantly. Even with the, the smartest people. So here, this is why I'm here tonight, because I'm, I'm recruiting dignity agents. All of you now, you're going to be responsible for, for spreading this, because it's just, you know, well, anyway, I don't know. Does it feel important to you? Am I just sitting here like a blabbering, you know, <laughs> idiot? No, it, I'm sure. I'm sure. Are you having yes. any thoughts about this? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Lauren. Um, work in higher education. And oh. I'm curious about the approach of dignity in the classroom, especially in pedagogical approaches. Oh, yes. I think of um, types of European systems that are built on uh, old honor, you oh. you down and then build you up. 
versus perhaps yes. a new approach where it yeah. meets you halfway in the classroom. Yeah. Well, I was actually just by by accident, really, I was introduced to a headmaster of a private school when I was working in Texas um, a few years back. And this headmaster was actually Jimmy. He was a he had been he was a brigadier general in the army and he had spent time in Afghanistan. And he came back from Afghanistan and decided, you know, when he experienced that conflict there, he decided that he wanted to focus on education because he realized that what was happening, the ignorance that led to all the, these conflicts and ones that he saw up, you know, up close and personal was so, he shared my, my experience of the ignorance. And, um, and so he, he asked me, he, he became a headmaster of a private school called Trinity Valley School in, in Texas. And he asked me to come in and train the teachers and to work with the administration uh, and to, to work with the students and you know present all these dignity ideas and to help the teachers develop curriculum. And they some of the teachers just went, did a beautiful, beautiful job. I mean, it was incredible. And in this book, the chapter five of this book, poor thing it fell, um, is all about the educational, uh, how to educate young leaders to, to become dignity leaders. And there, from that point, um, I worked at, with another school, La Jolla Country Day School. Somebody may, may know that in, in, in San Diego. I'm working here with a school in town called Rivers School. Um, Milton Academy was just um, contacted me. So people are getting this educational, the need for education. And the younger, the better. Because I can tell you, once I start introducing this to these little ones, I mean, they're as young as third graders. They, they understand this from the gut, not from the head. But they know what it's like to be bullied. They know what it's like to be, you know, treated badly, especially in school, in the school setting with other, you know, children. I mean, children can be pretty cruel. And so they get this so immediately, and they want this. This is, and the, this one teacher at the story I tell in the book was talking to me about this one student of hers who was so quiet. And he was always like in the corner, never wanting to say, always wanting to feel safe, you know, never saying anything. And this one student, once he started learning about dignity, he became like this changed kid and he and in fact he got the dignity master degree you know the, the award for being the greatest dignity student in the class so it's transformative for kids they they get this I mean but you know fortunately we have uh, several schools and I, I mean I'm wanting to get this into public schools obviously but I mean the hardest work is working with adults because we're all so wounded, you know. We've all had so many violations of our dignity that, it, like Jacob was saying, it's so hard to be vulnerable. It's so hard to make ourselves real and authentic with everyone because there, it's just not safe, right? It's just not safe. Yeah. Is there a particular age? Because I've noticed that um, kids, they're very, very authentic, and um, they, they. They're very matter, matter of fact when they're you know at a certain yeah. age, and then they're all of a sudden it changes, and then the the clicky stuff starts happening. Yeah. And, the, um, and then that's when the bullying kind of like starts getting exacerbated. So mm -hmm. is there a particular age? Because um, yeah, I don't have kids, but I have nieces. Yes. And uh, my sister and my brother-in-law are working very hard to keep the kids. They're both girls uh, to keep them strong and full sense yeah. of self. Yeah and not get to a point where the 11, 12-year-old sort of period where all of a sudden it starts to change. Yes. And they're trying to kind of work through some of that. Granted, they're not there yet, but I was just wondering, yes. is there a particular age? Have you looked at age? Well, you know, the interesting thing is I used to think that um, adolescence, uh, probably that's probably where we should start because they're just beginning to have identity issues, you know, just starting to form a sense of self and especially in relation to other people and all that. <laughs> and... Um, I think that is a, a very strong group to work with because there's my colleague in uh, Brooklyn. He's at a private school in Brooklyn called, um, what's the name of that school? Berkeley, Berkeley Carroll. I don't know if any of you know Berkeley Carroll School in Brooklyn. But he, he my colleague is working with middle, middle school kids in particular and the impact that he's having on these young um, 
adolescents, especially at this formative time when they're feeling so, you know, self-conscious and vulnerable and, uh, you know, the idea of being left out is so painful and, you know, and social media actually exacerbates this. It's, it's, so anyway, I think that's the perfect age. Um, and then once you get into high school, it's a little bit harder because they're already so, you know, into the cliques and into, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But the best is to start them young, really young. Um, that's what my educator friends are, are telling me. The younger we start, the better. So, yeah. How are we doing, Ariel? Any you're ready, we're ready to group up. Okay. So, anybody else have anything? Yes. What's your name? Alexa. Alexa, what would you like to say? Um, so, I'm a social worker in oh. the area, and I've studied a lot about mindfulness and mindfulness meditation with kids. And I was just, one of the biggest concepts in mindfulness is non being non-judgmental. Yes. So I was just wondering if you could speak to the difference or similarities with mm -hmm. teaching kids or just in general mindfulness and how that relates mm. to dignity. Well, I write about mindfulness in this book because I, I, I looked at all the research on mindfulness because the question is, I mean, I can sit here and tell you all that you have dignity and, you know, like the tutu story, I can tell you dignity is in your hands and your hands only. But what the research has shown is that when kids... Or learn mindfulness meditation early on, that that is a very, I don't want to say fast way, but it's a very um, um, reliable way of getting them in touch with that, those three connections, you know, of your own dignity. Of the, because in that mindful state, when everything gets cleared away, all the judgment, all of the negative, negative self-assessment, neg that's where you can actually feel those connections. So I think it's a wonderful way, um, mindfulness meditation. And, other, and loving kindness meditation is, is another um, wonderful way of doing it, too. So the, all these... these um, guys and women who are studying mindfulness meditation, because they also put people through brain scans, and they show how changed our brains become once we do meditate for, for a while. So there is a direct link there. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.